Your theme today is a God of second chances. And that's the God for me. And I suspect for you too. Um, We may have come to him and we um, may have done stuff as Christians and then, oh, we've blown it in some way or other. We've crashed. Some golden calf has come into our lives and um, we feel, is there any way back? Sometimes people ask me that. Is there any way back? And and mercifully, there is. And this chapter is about the way back uh, and gives us some of the critical um, stages in um, restoration. Uh, It's painted, this chapter, on an absolutely awesome canvas. Um, I've been to Mount Sinai. Uh, A bus can take you to the foot of the mountain. A camel can take you a bit further up. But the head of the mountain is swathed in um, in cloud, and it's a pretty uh, astonishing place. At the foot, there is a monastery, and this monastery has got a big room full of skulls. It is the skulls of previous abbots. It points to some pretty solemn stuff. And it's here that Moses went up to beg God to restore this people of Israel who were always running away from him and doing the wrong stuff and whose apostasy was a tremendous insult to the living God. I think there are four strands here in this recovery which I'd like to touch on. The first one is this, the name of the Lord keeps coming in this chapter. The Lord, the name of the Lord. Name, of course, means nature. And um, the nature of the Lord, how would we describe it? Well, it's there in verses 5 to 7. He is compassionate, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And we say, yeah, yeah, of course, that's his job. But look at verse 14. His name is jealous. He is a jealous God. He burns with a jealous love for his people, which far outstrips... Uh, the love of any husband for his wife. And God was angry with Israel, not because he hates them, but because he is lovingly committed to his covenant with Israel, his bride, and they have smashed that covenant. And it was that love, that jealous love, that refused to sweep their sin uh, under the carpet. Uh, Instead, he forced them to drink the um, uh, the powder um, of the golden calf ground up and put into the water supply, and they had to drink it. It's very interesting. That's a that's a direct parallel to the test for an adulterous wife in the book of Numbers. She had to drink this stuff, and it's um, a great reminder that God is a jealous God in the sense that he's passionately concerned for our hearts to um, be faithful to him and not to commit spiritual adultery. God cannot brook any rival in our lives. Second thing I see here is the result of rebellion. Um, this golden calf thing was the most serious apostasy that happens in the Old Testament. Uh, but our generation trivializes sin, and we're generally blind to its gravity. 
But this incident of Israel's apostasy in chapter 32 to worship the golden calf reminds us what a serious thing it is when God's people allow other goals, other priorities to uh, squeeze God uh, out of their lives. Uh, It could be, for us, I suppose, an overwhelming ambition that squashes everything else. It could be living a double life, one thing on Sunday in church and a very different thing on Monday in business. It could be um, sacrificing morality to the quest for money or for fame or for success. could be all sorts of things that could squeeze God out, but it mightily offends the Lord. We see him in the previous chapter, chapter 33, almost prepared to scrap Israel and start again with Moses. And we see Moses offering to be blotted out of God's book of life if only Israel could be restored. This is serious stuff. The stakes are very high. Wrongdoing has consequences. The wounds may be healed, by God's grace, but the scars remain. Just think of South Africa. The Reconciliation Commission has healed the wounds to a very large extent in that broken society. But broken bodies, broken hearts, um, broken families, uh, and certainly broken morality remain uh, in South Africa. Or, or think of the current situation that I think is in front of the law courts at the moment, of a woman um, who drank um, lots of alcohol while she was pregnant, and the child was born deformed and has had all sorts of troubles since, and now demands damages. Whatever the decision, nothing can remove the harm that that woman's selfishness has done. The consequences remain. And in this case of Israel, there were very serious consequences. 3,000 of the ringleaders were executed, and a plague affected the whole camp, while the golden calf was ground to powder, and they all had to drink this stuff in their water. Moses wanted their sin to turn their stomachs just as their sin had turned God's stomach. But wonderfully, we read in Deuteronomy that the water that they had to drink the stuff in came flowing down from a stream from Mount Sinai. Even God's judgment was mingled with covenant grace. Third thing I see here is the power and the importance of prayer. Um, We didn't actually read it, but if you've got your Bibles open, uh, you'll see it's there at the end of the chapter. Moses, this famous passage, going in to the tent or to, to, to the presence of God, and when he comes out of the presence of God, his face is shining so much that people would hardly look at him, and so he had to put a sort of veil on his face so that um, <clears throat> they would not be hopelessly embarrassed. The power of prayer. In today's activist society, and we're all extremely busy, I fancy that prayer, we tend to think, is actually a bit of a waste of time. We wouldn't admit it to anybody. We certainly wouldn't admit it to the vicar. 
but deep down we think, if necessary, we can do without it. Under the pressure of business, um, prayer is the first thing to go. But that is so very short-sighted. Because prayer is not a shopping list we bring to God. Prayer is to saying to God, God, I cannot do anything that's effective for you. You are the one that has the power, and I'm totally dependent upon you. And that's why it is so critical. I've just come back from a mission in the University of Prague, put on by nine people, can you believe it? And to see 30 or so people professing faith in this mission from a a militantly atheistic regime there in, in Prague. Fascinating. And the secret? Three students standing outside the law faculty in all weathers, once a week, praying for half an hour for their mates. Prayer has power. Or think of China. Early in the 20th century, a man called um, James Fraser was a CIM missionary pioneer out there, and he worked amongst one of the most backward tribes in the whole of Asia, the Lisu people. And they were animist, they were demon worshippers, they were drunken, um, they were totally uneducated, uh, very, very difficult. And Fraser labored there for years, and he got no joy at all. And he was deeply depressed. And he decided what he would do, he would mobilize prayer groups uh, throughout the UK. As a matter of fact, I was in one of them for for a while. Um, And prayer prevails because there was a major breakthrough in Lisu land during a tribal um, feast. The headman threw away his whiskey and he um, tore down the offering um, shelf on the spirit tree where all the offerings were made to the spirits. And he declared his faith in Jesus Christ. And soon, uh, Fraser could report that there were 2,000 tribes people doing their sort of alpha course of the day, getting some Christian instruction. And um, he taught them to read. He gave them a Bible. And um, the whole thing just exploded. Soon there were 15,000 Lisu Christians by the time that the communists took over in 1949. And then the churches were closed, the pastors were imprisoned, the believers were persecuted, and they had nothing left, nothing but prayer. In the 1970s, 30 years later, an old pastor limped out of a labor camp. And he returned to the Lisu, and revival broke out. That, by the way, is what a, a book I've got outside there called When God Breaks In, a stories of the revivals across the world, enormously encouraging. The biggest one in the world is happening right now in China. And certainly in Lisu land, after this revival breakout, there was 200,000 Lisu Christians amongst a tribal population of 575,000. It's prayer. They had nothing left at all. And that's the situation all over China. When Mao Zedong died in 1976, no single church building was open throughout the whole of that great land of China. And now, there are churches everywhere. And um, there are some 80 million Christian believers in China 
increasing at about 20,000 a day. Just think of it. They had no pastors, they had no Bibles, they had no churches, they had no fellowship. They just had prayer. And if there's one lesson that we need to learn, if there's anything going to happen to this life to the full mission in the spring, is that we've got to pray. Not great long times of prayer, but often lifting it up to the Lord. Prayer in church. Prayer um, in the home. Prayer uh, when we're strap-hanging in the tube. Prayer in the office, just as we sit down to work. Prayer in the gym, as we change our clothes. Pray regularly for five people that you hope to invite to this mission. Prayer will water the ground when you long to see the seed of God's message implanted in them and starting to bear fruit. And as you pray, like Moses, your face will shine when you've spent time in God's presence. And like Moses, you won't know it, but other people will. And it is radiant Christian faces that have more of an impact for the gospel than eloquent Christian arguments. The final thing I want to bring to you is this, and that's the importance, the imperative of wholeheartedness. Running through this passage, there is the notion of the covenant. And God on his side promises his presence, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, 33.14. And he promises his power, I will do wonders and you will see how awesome is the work that I will do, says the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 34. So God says, I'm going to do the stuff. But he also says, you've got to do what I say. And so the other side of the covenant is, obey what I command you, in verse 11. Only then will they overcome, will we overcome, um, the problems that inevitably beset us, just as that was the only way in which the Israelites could overcome the hostile tribes with which they were beset. Notice verse 15, do not make a treaty with those who live in the land. The idolatrous society round about them and round about us, God cannot use a divided heart. He loves us jealously and he longs for our wholehearted response. And if we want to see many people coming to faith in the spring, our prayer and our wholeheartedness are absolutely critical. And when temptation to go the way of everybody else, to compromise, when that temptation almost overwhelms us, let's go back in our minds to that cross and let's look into the eyes, the hurting eyes of the loving Jesus Christ on that cross. And we'll find it very hard then to say, I couldn't care less about you. I'm going to go my own way. Simon Peter looked into those loving, hurting eyes of Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He knew that uh, he had compromised terribly and betrayed his master out of fear. And he went out and he wept bitterly. 
But remember how the Lord of second chances took him aside after that astonishing breakfast by the lake once Jesus had risen from the dead. And three times he asked Peter if he loved him. Three times to match his three denials. And Peter was, of course, uh, uh, deeply humbled by that, but he was recommissioned. And he became what his name signified, the man of rock. And I guess what Jesus wants to ask us, if we've fallen back and if we need a second chance, I think he comes to us and says, do you love me? Do you really love me? And if we can say, Lord, you know, my love may be weak, but I do love you. If we can respond like that, he can use us like he used Peter. For Jesus does not scrap his failures. The Lord of the second chance makes them men and women of rock.